Chapter 12 of A School History of the Great War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A School History of the Great War by McKinley, Colomb, and Garrison. Chapter 12 The War in 1918. Failure of German Peace Offensive. During the fall of 1917, Germany had started a great discussion of the terms of the peace which should close the war. In general, the position taken by German spokesmen was, peace without annexations and without indemnities, as proposed by the Russian Bolsheviki. Such talk was designed to weaken the war spirit of the Allied peoples, and perhaps to make the German people believe that they were fighting a war of self-defense. The time was ripe for a statement of the war aims of Germany's opponents. This statement later, approved in general by Allied statesmen, was made by President Wilson in his address to Congress on January 8, 1918. It is discussed in detail in Chapter 14. It was not satisfactory to Germany's rulers, for they hoped to secure better terms in a piece of bargains and compromises. Russia makes a separate peace. Only in Russia was this German peace offensive a success. In the last chapter we saw how, in the latter part of 1917, the Bolsheviki had gained control of the government of Russia and had arranged an armistice with the Central Powers. This meant the stopping of all fighting along the Eastern Front and the consequent freeing of many thousands of German soldiers to fight in the West. At Brest-Litovsk, a town in Russian Poland, which had been occupied by the troops of the Central Powers, a meeting of delegates was called to arrange the terms of peace. The negotiations at this place lasted from December 23, 1917, to February 10, 1918. The Germans had determined to keep large portions of Russian territory. At the conference, the German delegates flatly refused to promise to withdraw their troops from the occupied parts of Russia after the peace. By February 10, hope of any settlement that would satisfy Russia had disappeared, and the Bolshevik delegates left Brest-Litovsk. The war, so far as Russia was concerned, was at an end, but no treaty of peace had been signed. The Bolshevik government issued orders for the complete demobilization of the Russian armies on all the battlefronts. Germany, determined to compel Russia to accept her terms, renewed her military operations on February 18. The result was that Lenin and Trotsky, the Bolshevik leaders, were forced to agree to the conditions which had been laid down by the Central Powers at Brest-Litovsk. Nevertheless, the Germans continued their advance, with practically no opposition, to within 70 miles of Petrograd. THE SEPARATION OF UKRAINIA AND FINLAND Ukraina, the southwestern corner of Russia, is the home of a Slavic people, the Little Russians, closely akin to the Russians proper. The people of Finland, in the extreme northwest, are of a distinctly different race. In both these regions there were set up independent governments, which resisted the rule of the Bolsheviki. With the aid of German troops the power of the Bolsheviki in the new states was soon destroyed. Through the setting up of these states, particularly Ukraina, Germany hoped to secure grain supplies, and to control large iron and coal deposits. Dissatisfaction of the people with German control, however, interfered seriously with the realizing of such hopes. 
The Peace of Brest-Litovsk On March 3, peace between Russia and the Central Powers was finally signed at Brest-Litovsk. By the terms of the treaties, Russia was compelled, one, to surrender her western provinces of Poland, Lithuania, Livonia, Estonia, and Courland, two, to recognize the independence of Ukraine and Finland, three, to cede to Turkey certain important districts south of the Caucasus Mountains. Begin footnote. After driving the Russians out of Asia Minor, and taking the districts ceded to Turkey, the Turkish forces went on and seized nearly all of the southern Caucasus before October 1918. End footnote. And four, to pay a tremendous indemnity. The falsity of the German talk of no annexations and no indemnities was now evident. Few more disastrous treaties have ever been forced upon a vanquished nation. It has been estimated that the treaties of Brest-Litovsk took from Russia 4% of her total area, 26% of her population, 37% of her foodstuffs production, 26% of her railways, 33% of her manufacturing industries, 75% of her coal, and 73% of her iron. Romania makes peace. Romania, deserted by Russia, was forced to make peace in the spring of 1918 by ceding to her enemies the whole of the Dobruja and also about 3,000 square miles of territory on her western frontier. The Central Powers, moreover, were given control of the vast petroleum fields and the rich wheat lands of the defeated nation. A little later, however, the Russian province of Bessarabia decided to unite itself to Romania, as most of its people are of the Romanian race. The Russian Situation in 1918 In spite of the Brest-Litovsk treaties, the Allies continued to regard Russia as a friendly nation. President Wilson took the lead in this attitude. It was felt that the Russian people were sadly in need of assistance, but just how this should be given was a serious problem. The question was complicated by the presence in Russia of a large army of Czechoslovaks. These soldiers were natives of the northwestern Slavic provinces of Austria-Hungary. They had been part of the Austrian army during the victorious Russian campaigns in Galicia, and had been taken prisoners. The Czechoslovaks had always sympathized with the Allied countries, and had fought for Austria unwillingly. Many, indeed, had later fought as part of the Russian army. When Russia left the war, they feared that they might be returned to the hated Austrian government. To avoid this, their leaders sought and obtained from the Bolshevik government permission to travel eastward through Russia and Siberia to the Pacific. Here they planned to take ship, and after a voyage three-quarters around the globe, take their place in the armies of the Allies. The long journey began. Then the Bolsheviki, probably acting under German orders, recalled the permission they had given. The Czechoslovaks went on nevertheless, determined to proceed even if they had to fight their way. They were opposed at different points by Bolshevik troops, with the assistance of organized bodies of German and Austrian prisoners, but the Czechoslovaks were victorious. In fact, with the aid of anti-Bolshevik Russians, they seized control of most of the Siberian Railroad and of parts of eastern Russia. Allied Intervention in Russia 
At last, the Allied nations and the United States decided that it was time to undertake military intervention in Russia. This was carried out in two places. Bodies of American and Japanese troops were landed on the east coast of Siberia to cooperate with the Czechoslovaks. The latter, thus reinforced, changed their plans for leaving Russia and decided to fight for the Allied cause where they were. They were encouraged by the fact that they were recognized by the Allies and by the United States as an independent nation. Another small Allied army was landed on the north coast of Russia and marched south against the Bolsheviki. Large parts of Russia, north and east of Moscow, declared themselves free of Bolshevik rule. It was the hope of the Allies that the rule, now marked by pillage, murder, and famine, would shortly be overthrown, and that a new Russia would rise and take its place among the democracies of the world. The Western Front Early in 1918, after the failure of the German peace offensive in the West, rumors came from Germany of preparations for a great military drive on the Western Front. The Iron Fist and the Shining Sword were to break in the doors of those who opposed a German-made peace. There were good reasons for such an attack in the spring of 1918. Germany had withdrawn many troops from the east, where they were no longer needed to check the Russians. Further, although a few American troops had reached France, it was thought that not many could be sent over before the fall of 1918, and the full weight of America's force could not be exerted before the summer of 1919. It was to Germany's interest to crush France and England before the power of the American nation was thrown into the struggle against her. Germany's New Plan of Attack The German military leaders, therefore, determined to stake everything upon one grand offensive on the Western Front, while their own force was numerically superior to that of the Allies. Their expectation of victory in what they proudly called the Kaiser's Battle was based not only upon the possession of greater numbers, but also upon the introduction of new methods of fighting, which would overcome the old trench warfare. The new methods comprised three principal features. In the first place, much greater use was made of the element of surprise. Large masses of men were brought up near the front by night marches, and in daytime were hidden from airplane observation by smoke screens, camouflage of various kinds, and by the shelter of woodlands. In this way, any portion of the opposing trench line could be subjected to a heavy, unexpected attack. Secondly, the advance was prepared for by the use of big guns in enormous quantities and in new ways. The number of guns brought into use in this offensive far exceeded that put into the Verdun offensive of 1916, which had been looked upon as the extreme of possible concentration of artillery. The shell-fire was now to be directed not only against the trenches, but also far to the rear of the Allied positions. This would break up roads, railways, and bridges for many miles behind the trenches, and prevent the sending of reinforcements up to the front. Vast numbers of large shells containing poisonous mustard gas were collected. These were to be fired from heavy guns, and made to explode far behind the Allied lines. By this means, suffocation might be spread among the reserves, among motor-drivers, and even among the army mules, and by deranging the transport service make it impossible to concentrate troops to withstand the German advance. 
In the third place, shock troops composed of selected men from all divisions of the army were to advance after the bombardment in a series of waves. When the first wave had reached the limit of its strength and endurance, it was to be followed up by a second mass of fresh troops, and this by a third, and so on, until the Allies' defense was completely broken. By their excess in numbers, and by these newly devised methods of warfare, the German leaders hoped to accomplish three things. One, to separate the British army from the French army. Two, to seize the channel ports and interrupt by submarines and big guns the transportation of men and supplies from England to France. And three, to capture Paris and compel the French to withdraw from the war. Let us now see how and why the Germans failed to secure any one of these three objectives, and how the Allied forces resumed the offensive in the summer of 1918. THE GERMAN ADVANCE Five great drives, conducted according to the newly devised methods of warfare, were launched by the Germans between March 21 and July 15, 1918. The first, continuing from March 21 to April 1, called the Battle of Picardy, was directed at the point where the British army joined that of the French, near the Somme River. There was at this time no unified command of all the Allied armies, and the blow fell unexpectedly upon the British, and won much territory before French assistance could be brought up. Outnumbered three to one, the British fell back at the point of greatest retreat, to a distance of thirty miles from their former line. But the extreme tenacity of the British, and the arrival of French troops, prevented the Germans from capturing the important city of Amiens, or reaching the main roads to Paris, or separating the British and French armies. Learning a needed lesson from this disaster, the Allied nations agreed to a unified military command, and appointed as commander-in-chief the French general Foch, who had distinguished himself in the first battle of the Marne in 1914 and elsewhere. Before this step had been taken, General Pershing had offered his small army of 200,000 Americans to be used wherever needed by the French and the British. The second German offensive began on April 9, and was again directed against the British, this time farther to the north, in Flanders, between the cities of Ypres and Arras. In ten days the Germans advanced to a maximum depth of ten miles on a front of thirty miles, but the British fought most desperately, and the German losses were enormous. At last the advance was checked, and the channel ports were saved. Germany on the march had encountered England at bay, and had failed to destroy the heroic British army. And now came a lull of over a month, while the Germans were reorganizing their forces, and preparing for a still greater blow. Again, the element of surprise was employed. The Allies expected another attack somewhere in the line from Soissons to the sea, and their reserves were so disposed as to meet such an attack. But the German blow was directed against the weakest part of the Allied line, the stretch from Rheims to Soissons, where a break might open the road to Paris from the east. The third drive began on May 27. For over a week the French were pushed back, fighting valiantly, across land which had not seen the enemy since September 1914. The greatest depth of the German advance was thirty miles, that is, to within forty-four miles of Paris. The enemy had once again reached the Marne River, and controlled the main roads from Paris to Verdun, 
and to the eastern parts of the Allied line. The fourth drive started a few days later, on June 9, in a region where an attack was expected. It resulted in heavy losses to the Germans, who succeeded in pushing only six miles toward Paris, in the region between Soissons and Montdidier. The advantages of a single command had begun to appear. General Foch could use all the Allied forces where they were most needed. The fifth drive opened on July 15, and spread over a front of 100 miles east of Soissons. The Allies were fully prepared, and while falling back a little at first, the American and French troops soon won back some of the abandoned territory. THE TURNING OF THE TIDE A glance at a map of the battlefront of July 18 will show that the Germans had driven three blunt wedges into the Allied lines. These positions would prove dangerous to the Germans, if ever the Allies were strong enough to assume the offensive. And just now the moment came for Foch to strike a great counterblow. During the spring and early summer, American troops had been speeded across the Atlantic, until by the 4th of July over a million men were in France. On July 18, fresh American and French troops attacked the Germans in the narrowest of the wedges along the Marne River, and within a few days compelled the enemy to retreat from this wedge. On August 8, a British army began a surprise attack on the middle wedge, and by the use of large numbers of light, swift tanks, succeeded in driving the Germans back for a distance of over ten miles on a wide front. The offensive had now passed from the Germans to the Allies. Under Foch's repeated attacks, the enemy was driven back, first at one point and then at another. He had no time to prepare a counter-drive. He did not know where the next blow would fall. By the end of September, he had given up nearly all his recent conquests, devastating much of the country as he retired. In several places also he was forced still farther back, across the old Hindenburg line. In two days, September 12 to 13, the Americans and French, under the direction of General Pershing, wiped out an old German salient near Metz, taking 200 square miles of territory and 15,000 prisoners. Altogether, by the end of September, Foch had taken over a quarter of a million prisoners, with 3,669 cannon and 23,000 machine guns. It is said that the complete defeat of the German plans was due primarily to three things. One, the dogged steadfastness of the British and the patient heroism of the French soldiers and civilians. Two, the brilliant strategy of General Foch, and the unity of command which made this effective. 3. The material and moral encouragement of the American forces, of whom nearly 1,500,000 were in France, before the end of August. THE WAR IN ITALY, THE BALKANS, AND SYRIA The summer of 1918 witnessed the launching of a great offensive by the Austrians against the Italian armies holding the Piave front. It is probable that the chief purpose of this blow was to draw Allied troops into Italy from the battlefront in Belgium and France. The Italians, however, proved themselves amply able to fight their own battle, and the Austrian attempt was repulsed with tremendous losses. The autumn of this year saw important happenings on the Balkan front also. This theatre of the war had been uneventful for a long time. 
the battle line extended from the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean, and was held by a mixed army of Serbians, Greeks, Italians, British, and French, under the command of General Desprey, with headquarters at Salonica. Opposed to these troops were armies of Bulgarians and Austrians, together with a considerable number of Germans. Encouraged by the German defeats in the West, which had forced the withdrawal of large numbers of German troops from Eastern Europe, the Allies launched a strong offensive on the Balkan front in the middle of September. Day after day their advance continued, resulting in the capture of many thousands of prisoners and the reoccupation of many miles of Albanian and Serbian territory. The campaign was one of the most successful of the whole war. Within two weeks the Bulgarians asked for an armistice, accepted the terms that were demanded, and on September 30 definitely withdrew from the war. Their surrender broke the lines of communication between the Central Powers and Turkey, and at one blow destroyed Teutonic supremacy in the Balkans. An even more important consequence was the moral effect on the general public in Germany, Austria, and Turkey, where it was taken by many as a sign that surrender of the Central Powers could only be a question of time. Meanwhile, events of almost equal importance were taking place in Palestine and Syria. General Allenby had taken Jerusalem in December 1917. In the fall of 1918, new and important advances were made in this region, Arab forces east of the Jordan cooperating with the British armies. By the close of September, more than 50,000 Turkish soldiers and hundreds of guns had been captured. In October, General Allenby's men took the important cities of Damascus and Aleppo, and in Mesopotamia also the British began a new advance. Turkey was already asking for an armistice, and now accepted terms that were virtually a complete surrender. October 31. By this time, Austria-Hungary was in the throes of dissolution. Independent republics were being set up by the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Yugoslavs, and even the German-Austrians. These revolutions were hastened by the overwhelming victory of the Italians in the Second Battle of the Piave. Their attack began October 24 on the mountain front, but soon the Allied forces under General Diaz crossed the river and cut through the lines of the fleeing Austrians. In the capture of large numbers of prisoners and guns, the Italians took full vengeance for their defeat of the preceding year. So hopeless indeed was the situation for the Austrians that they too accepted an armistice that was practically a surrender. November 4. GERMAN RETREAT IN THE WEST After the Germans had been driven back to their old lines in France, there was danger that the contest might settle down to the old form of trench warfare. But the intricate defences of the Hindenburg line, in some cases extending to a depth of ten miles from the front trenches, did not prove strong enough to withstand the American and Allied advance. Foch attacked the line from each end and also in the centre. In the north, by October 20, Belgian and British troops had recaptured all the Belgian coast with its submarine bases, and the British had taken the important cities of Lens and Lille, the former valuable on account of its coal mines. In the centre, British and French troops broke through to the important points of Cambrai, Saint-Quentin, and Lannes, while farther east the French and Americans began an advance along the Meuse River, threatening to attack the German line in the rear. By this time it seemed likely that a general retirement from Belgium and France had been determined upon by the German leaders. 
Moreover, the impending defeat of the German armies led to a new peace drive by the German government. On October 6, President Wilson received a note from the German Chancellor, asking for an armistice, requesting that the United States take steps for the restoration of peace, and stating that the German government accepted as a basis for peace negotiations the program as laid down in the President's message to Congress of January 8, 1918. Chapter 14 and in his subsequent addresses. In the ensuing correspondence, several points are worthy of special notice. President Wilson opposed any suggestion of an armistice till after the evacuation of Allied territory, or except as it might be arranged by the military advisers of the American and Allied powers, on such terms as would make impossible the renewal of hostilities by Germany. He also called attention to the following point in his address of July 4, 1918. The destruction of every arbitrary power anywhere that can separately, secretly, and of its single choice disturb the peace of the world, or, if it cannot be presently destroyed, at the least its reduction to virtual impotence, stated that the military autocracy still in control of Germany was such a power, and insisted on dealing only with a new or altered German government, in which the representatives of the people should be the real rulers. On November 11, while the German armies in France and Belgium were being defeated by the Allied and American forces, envoys from the German government accepted from General Foch an armistice, in terms that meant virtually the surrender of Germany, and thus brought hostilities to an end. End of chapter 12 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on October 1st, 2009, in San Diego, California.